Let's head to 1 Samuel chapter 18. Who's that guy? You'll find out in a minute. 1 Samuel chapter 18. The more I learn about Jonathan, the son of Saul, the friend of David, the more I like him, the more I admire him, the more I want to be like him. Now, obviously, this is what somebody thought Jonathan might have looked like. We don't know what Jonathan looked like, as there was no photography in Bible days. So this is my best guess. But I got a feeling when I get to heaven, he might have looked like that. Just like I'm pretty convinced that the Pharaoh of the Exodus looked like Yul Brenner. I'm pretty <laughs> convinced of that. If you saw the Ten Commandments, you know what I'm talking about. We're introduced to Jonathan in 1 Samuel chapter 13, and sadly we must part ways with him in 1 Samuel 31. His name means whom Jehovah gave. And he certainly was a gift to David and everybody that was around him. His character and his integrity are all the more impressive when you consider how corrupt his father would become. Now, for the next two messages, this morning and tonight, Lord willing, we're going to explore the example of Jonathan. The example of Jonathan. Specifically, we're going to look at at two traits that he had that we desperately need to display in our own lives. Jonathan demonstrates so vividly the need for us to be, first of all, submissive in our fealty. Now, what's fealty? Fealty is loyalty. It's, It's being dedicated to someone. It's being under the authority of someone. Submissive in our fealty. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Submissive in our fealty. But then tonight, we're going to learn from the example of Jonathan how to be sanctified in our friendships. Can I be blunt with you? Some of the greatest friends I've had over the years have been Christians. And some of the most hurtful friends I've had over the years have been Christians. And we have a responsibility to be not just a friend, but to be the right kind of friend. And we learn a lot about that from Jonathan. And Lord willing, we'll talk about that tonight. We begin, first of all, with his example of submissive fealty. 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse number 1. It came to pass when David made an end of speaking unto Saul, that the soul of Jonathan was knit with the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him go, and would let him go no more to his father's house. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant, because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was upon him and gave it to David and his garments, even to his sword and to his bow and to his girdle. Father, would you help us as we look to this message? Folks are hurting this morning. Folks are tired. Perhaps they're distracted. But Lord, just as every time we gather, we desperately need to hear from you. 
I need your touch, Lord. No amount of preparation, no amount of insight, no amount of talent or anything like it can make up for the power of the Holy Spirit of God. And we desperately need to see that today. So would you bless your word? Would you speak to hearts? If there's somebody here today that needs to be saved, I pray they trust Christ. I pray for Christians, Lord, that need to resume a submissive fealty to their sovereign today. Have your will and way in this time, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, this, what we're reading here in these first four verses of 1 Samuel 18, it is an exceptional moment. It is, it is an amazing moment, but I'm going to wait to tell you why tonight. I'm going to give you the specific reason tonight, but just kind of keep that filed away in your mental Rolodex, that there is there's something going on in these first four verses that make it even more exceptional. The love that Jonathan possessed for David was a pure appreciation of who David was and what he meant to Jonathan. Do not let anybody bring into your thinking anything wicked about this relationship. Wicked people have tried to form something here that is not here. Hey, can I remind you of something, men, and we really need to understand this. It is completely not only possible but appropriate and needed that godly men learn how to love each other again. That godly men learn how to be close to one another. That godly men know how to weep with one another. That godly men know how to depend on one another. Don't let the world run you away from that. This world is in desperate need of godly men that are in solidarity together for the cause of Christ. We desperately need it. To be knit with someone is to enjoy a closeness that is rooted in common experience and goals. For these two, it was the common goal of loving and seeking to glorify Jehovah. David loved God. Jonathan loved God. And I've used this paradigm so often in marriages, marriage counseling and premarital counseling and so forth. If God's here and I'm here and my wife's here, or in this case, David's here and Jonathan's here, and they're striving to get closer to God, what happens? They're getting closer to one another, aren't they? Let me tell you something, men that love God will get close to each other. And if you're not close to other Christian men, there's a pretty good shot that you don't love God like you ought to. Hmm? Yeah. For these two, that was their common goal. But Jonathan's actions go beyond this chance commonality. They both had this in common. Jonathan was making a statement in these four verses, one of complete and total loyalty and devotion, one of submissive fealty a fidelity and devotion to somebody that he deemed was greater than himself and so let's ask two questions just two does that mean we'll get out early no it does not but just two questions okay first question why was jonathan expressing this fealty the answer is found in first samuel 17 And it goes beyond an appreciation for his heroic exploits. What do we see in 1 Samuel 17? We see David and Goliath. And we see see David stepping up when nobody else would. If you're not familiar with the setting, what would often happen in these times is one army would put forth their greatest champion and and another army would put forth their greatest champion and they would duke it out and whoever won, the whole army won. 
And so they send out Goliath. I watched a video not long ago of a theologian trying to express that Goliath was really quite weak. And that, that, you know, he had somebody had to carry his shield and carry his sword and carry his spear because he was weak. There's nothing historically accurate about that statement. When you were a man of certain stature, you had underlings that carried your shield and carried your sword and carried your spear. Goliath was nine foot nine inches tall. Goliath was not like some of these NBA stars that get to that height of seven five, seven six, and they're that you know they look like this. They're about that big around. I'm thinking of Minute Bowl when I was growing up. Minute Bowl was like seven foot forever, and he could have fit through the hoop. Okay, and and Sean Bradley. Sean Bradley came out of Brigham Young. Sean Bradley, maybe the tallest guy at that time in the NBA, and he played against Charles Barkley, much, much smaller than him, and Charles Barkley beat him all over that court because there wasn't anything to him. He's skinny, like I used to be. (laughs) Goliath was 9 foot 9 inches tall, and Goliath was a professional soldier. He was strong. He was, he was, he was wide. He was, to use a, a modern term, he was diesel. And then you've got this 17-year-old scrawny red-headed kid. How do I know he was red-headed? Because the Bible says he was ruddy. Little red-headed kid. Goliath's over there blaspheming Israel's God and making fun of Israel's king and and sliding Israel's soldiers. And David gets there with the delivery that his father sent with him. And David said, what in the world is going on here? Why are you letting this guy talk like this? Is there not a cause? But nobody would step up and take on Goliath. You know why? Because every one of them knew to step onto that field meant certain death. Why did Jonathan appreciate David? Because David went in his place into a valley of certain death, and David defeated an enemy that Jonathan never could. David took his place. That's why Jonathan appreciated that's what gave, gave uh, cause to this expression of fealty. David went into the valley that spelled death for everyone else. He approached an unbeatable enemy and defeated him. His victory opened the door for everyone else to experience freedom and victory as well. Jonathan recognized this redheaded kid had done for them what none of them could do for themselves. Now, that's the first question. Why was Jonathan expressing this fealty? But the second question where I want to spend a little more time is what was Jonathan actually expressing? In verse number four. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was upon him and gave it to David and his garments, even to his sword, and to his bow, and to his girdle. Let me give you a satin. Well, no, let's not do that yet. He gave him his rope. Now, I want to be careful here. 
Sometimes I use resources to study out a passage, and they lead me in another direction, and I come up with stuff I think on my own. That's not the case in these next points. These points are taken verbatim from a guy named John Phillips, and I want to give him his credit for his hard work. Okay? Um, I can't improve upon it, and so I'm just going to give you what he said. First of all, his robe. When Jonathan surrendered his robe, what was he really surrendering? What was he really submitting to David? Well, he was submitting his position. That robe was a robe that was given to the crown prince. It identified him as the firstborn son of Saul. That was his position. He was the general of Saul's army, second in command, and the heir apparent to the throne. And when Saul took that, and when Jonathan rather took that robe off and gave it to David, he was surrendering his position. Even now, and we'll talk about this more tonight, even now it seems that Jonathan understood he was not next in line for the throne. Even now. Think back to when you were 17. How would you feel if everything you dreamed of becoming, all of a sudden you realized is not going to happen? See? He gave him his robe. He surrendered his position. Then it says he gave him his garments. Now, that doesn't mean all of them. But that outer tunic that he wore under that robe, he gave to David. And that was symbolic of a surrender of his possessions. David, you can have my position. And I want you to know something else. Anything that's mine is yours. You can have my possessions. Now, you say, well, okay, he gave him a change of clothes. That's not a big deal. Listen, even kings, even rich people only had a certain number of... I mean, like right now, if you go in my closet, I've got more clothing than I'm ever going to wear. And a lot of that clothing I can't wear. But I hold on to it under this weird thing that I think that I'm going to lose weight and be able to get back into it. I probably should just go ahead and goodwill it now. That wasn't the case back then. It's a hard thing to come by to get clothing. And so when you give away something like that, that's a sacrifice. And he gave him something symbolic of his possessions. But then he gave him his sword. What was he giving up there? What was he surrendering to David? He was surrendering his protection. That's how he defended himself, was that sword. And what he was saying is, David, I see who you are, and I see what God has planned for you, and I'm turning my well-being and my protection over to you. Then he gave him his bow. If the robe was surrender of position and the garments was a surrender of possessions, and the sword was a surrender of protection. The bow was a surrender of his prowess. You see, if you're good with a bow, that takes some skill. Especially the bows of that day and the arrows of that day. They didn't have all the compound stuff we have today. He's saying, you can have my skill. But then he says, he gave him his girdle. Now, this is not quite the same thing that we understand as a girdle today. A girdle was a cloth that... A man would wrap around his midsection, and it had a variety of uses. One of the uses was you would hide things in it, little, pa little pouches of money, maybe a smaller little dagger, things like that. Now, I want to be super careful about how I say this. 
the girdle was also meant to protect him in the way that you would think. Okay? It was meant to offer some measure of protection. Because that area of his body represented his future. So when he gives him his girdle, what is he saying? I'm surrendering to you my plans. My future is in your hands, David. See, so what we see here is what happens in verse number four is a pretty big deal. It's a pretty big deal. Now, this is the side note that I was going to get to earlier. If they followed the custom of the day in this covenant, David likely gave Jonathan what possessions he had in return. So here's what David gets. David gets a robe, and he gets a sword, and he gets a bow, and he gets a cloak, and, and, and he, gets, he gets a girdle. Any one of those worth more than probably his whole estate? What does he have to give Jonathan? A sling. And his staff. That's it. Who got the better end of that deal? Think David did? No. Jonathan got the better end of that deal. You know why? Because the intrinsic value of David's possessions were much greater. Because for the rest of his life, he had the sling that was used to kill Goliath. Mm. These things that really weren't worth that much, that would seemingly be easily replaced. This sling would speak long after Jonathan's gifts had outlived their usefulness. How would you like to have the sling of David in your collection? Now, don't get too excited with 20 minutes left. So what? My so what's coming much earlier in the message than it usually does. So don't pack up. You're not done yet. If you've not already pieced this thing together, David is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just a couple of ways that that's true. David went into a place of death for other people. So did Jesus. Not for nothing, what does David say in Psalm 22? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Who else do we hear saying that? Jesus. David fought and defeated an enemy that no one else could even approach. What did Jesus do for us? He fought and defeated an enemy that none of the rest of us could even approach. And you know what his victory offers for us? The opportunity for freedom. If we'll have it, the opportunity for freedom and victory. So what should we do? We should be like Jonathan. When we consider what our David, Jesus Christ, has done for us, you know what the first thing he should get is? Our position. Lord Jesus, anything I ever hoped to be, any, any, any aspirations I had to be someone of stature, anything I think of myself that's good, I surrender it in fealty 
to you. If I'm to be a pastor, I'll be a pastor because you want me to be a pastor. If I'm to be a mother, I'll be a mother because you want me to be a mother. If I'm to be a teacher, I'll be a teacher because you want me to be a teacher. If I'm to be, you know, on the board of supervisors, then I'll be on the board of supervisors because that's what you want. Whatever you want, Lord, I take my position and I surrender it to you. No longer am I the sovereign in waiting. No longer am I waiting for when I take over. No, Lord, you are my king from here on out. I give you in submissive fealty, my position. And you know what else, Lord, I give you? I give you my possessions. Everything I have is yours. Everything. Because anything that I refuse to give to you instantly becomes an idol. That means I give you my physical possessions, and I give you my emotional possessions. I give you my desires. I give you my relationships. I give you my marriage. I give you my children. I give it all to you. It all belongs to you. You know what else? Lord, I give you my protection. If you call me to go into a dangerous place, I'll trust you to take care of me. Now, that doesn't mean that God expects us to not defend ourselves. That's not what we're talking about. But ultimately, you know, say, the horse is prepared against the day of battle, but safety is of the Lord. Lord, I'll go where you want me to go. I'll do what you want me to do, and I'll, tr- I'll entrust my well-being to you. Here's my sword. Here's my sword. You know what else? My prowess. I submit to you any skill that I have. Any skill that I have will be used for your glory, whether it's music, art, craftsmanship, whatever. My skill, my prowess belongs to you. And then I surrender to you, my king, my position, my possessions, my protection, my prowess, and you have my plans. Whatever you want for me. Wherever you want for me, I submit. I submit. You remember that side note? We feel like we're giving him some pretty big stuff. What did he give us? Blood and a robe. Wait a minute now. I gave him my sword. I give him my robe. I give him my garments. I gave, I gave him I gave him everything. I gave him position. I gave him possessions. I gave him protection. I gave him prowess. I gave him my plans. And all I get is blood and a robe. Who got the better end of that deal? Yeah, go ahead, preacher. We did. Amen. Jesus doesn't need anything we give him. But we need everything he'll give us. He gave us blood. Colossians 1 verse 12, giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of, of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us unto the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his Blood. I don't know what you think you need this morning, but before you need anything else, you need the shed blood of Jesus Christ. There's nothing more valuable than that because you know what that blood leads to? It leads to a robe. 
What does that robe do for you? Well, Isaiah describes this robe. It belongs to the Messiah, and he gives it to us. Isaiah 61, verse 10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorneth herself with her jewels. You see, on the day I got saved, when that blood was applied, all I had, my righteousness was as filthy rags. Nothing to him. Got rid of it. And then what did he give me? He gave me a robe of righteousness. And you know what that robe says? That says, this is my son, both born and adopted into the family of God. And this is a robe nobody else can have. No one can take, and it can't be taken back. It means I'm his forever. And you know what I find? That's a pretty great deal for giving up my position and my prowess and my possessions and my protection and my plans. Jesus got the worst end of the deal with me, and yet he still wanted me. So we look to the example of Jonathan, and we see that he recognized who David was, why he was there, what he wanted to do. So he said, the least I can do is give you my position, give you my possessions, give you my protection. Give you my prowess. Give you my plans. May we learn to follow Jonathan's example in the importance of submissive fealty.